0: Well, I trust that you have learned so much about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ this morning already in the main service, and what a blessing that was. And uh, I found out this last week that uh, Pastor John was going to be uh, speaking on the virgin birth um, after I had decided to speak on the virgin birth. So, uh, but I trust that the Lord has put us in kind of a parallel um, understanding so that we can bring especially this morning in the second hour, some of the theology of the virgin birth that I think will be helpful for you as you come into this week. But um, to start talking about Messiah and his first coming, uh, we're going to start with talking about false messiahs. False messiahs, these false Christs, these pseudo-Christs that Jesus in Matthew 24 warns about. He warns about false messiahs that are going to turn up in the end times to distract believers, Later on in uh, the, the, the New Testament, the Apostle John, in 1 John 2.18, states this, Children, it is even now the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this, we know that it is the last hour. Uh, interestingly, these false messiahs have always been around, always trying to distract us from the true Messiah." And especially on a week like this, there are false messiahs still out there and many distractions in this kind of season. So as we get our heads straight into the work, I wanted to give you a few examples from history of some of the more notable false messiahs. One of them was in the 2nd century AD, uh, and he was a Jew, Simon Bar Kokhba, And I'm not sure if many of you would know about him, but he led a revolt against the Roman Empire at that point, and some of his contemporaries considered that in this uh, trying to overthrow the the opposition and finally free Israel, they called him the Messiah. He now embodied Christ. Well, uh, skipping ahead to another notable Jew in the 17th century, there was a Jewish mystic named Sabbatai Zevi, and he was in the Ottoman Empire. And in the Ottoman Empire, he claimed himself to be Messiah. Interestingly, when the sultan of the Ottoman Empire uh, gave him the ultimatum, the ultimate ulti- ultimatum, either be killed for his, uh, his view and his, uh, his declaration uh, or convert to Islam, this false messiah decided that he and all of his converts were going to convert to Islam. So he got a hefty salary and went home a rich man and enjoyed his pension in isolation from any um, oppression as this Messiah figure. Well, there are many so-called Christians throughout history that have also dabbled in this this uh, very unholy act of calling themselves Messiah too. Uh, they claim to be Christians though, and so what that means is they can't deny all of the cardinal doctrines, and the most obvious one is that Messiah already came to earth. So what do these Christian or professing Christian false messiahs say? They say that they're not uh, replacing Jesus in his first coming, but they are the embodiment of Christ in his second coming. So some notable examples in 1774, famous date for many reasons, but there was Mother Anne Lee, who was the leader of the Shakers. She was in New York at this point, Uh, Coming uh, through England and having been imprisoned many times there, she comes and she claimed to be the full embodiment of deity in female form. Jesus was now incarnated as a woman. Uh, By the early 1900s, this just would keep going on and on and start cropping up in various circles. Uh, In Holland, there are documented cases of false messiahs. Africa, whether it's Congo, South Africa, Kenya, other places, false messiahs spring up, Latin America, multiple examples of that. Um, And throughout this last century then, that would continue building. South Africa has some notable false Christs, uh, the former Soviet Union, and various locations all across America. One of them that many of us remember from 1993, David Koresh. Uh, He was uh, in this tragedy with this uh, branch Davidian group in Waco, Texas. Uh, He claimed to be the spiritual descendant of King David. And in the power of King Cyrus, he said that he himself would establish the Millennial Kingdom. Unfortunately, his whole little kingdom went down in flames uh, with a very difficult standoff with the government. Well, these are some of those historical examples that might be in our mind, but something that unites all of them is that these false messiahs rise up from the time that they're adults doing something in their communities. They're recognized for their accomplishments as adult people. They don't make history until they do something profound, and they're not recognized as some kind of a Christ while they're a baby, while they're children— um, and they don't have, like Pastor John was even saying, there's no one else with the the high degree and uh, uh, of prophecy attached to his name, hundreds and hundreds of years before he existed. So, when we talk about the true Messiah, the thing that none of these other false messiahs can share is that here we have true Messiah, and we understand him to be such from the time of his virgin conception, and all the prophecies that would teach us about that, leading to his birth and then to his developing life as Messiah. Then we see him in all of his uh, radiance in ministry in the human sphere during his public ministry that testifies to his actual role as Messiah. And so uh, there are a couple prophecies that you know we work into so many of our songs, Um, a couple of them since We're sojourners. It's good to tie into the Old Testament. And uh, the first one is probably on the tip of your tongue. It's Isaiah 7.14. We heard it this morning. It's been sung. Uh, It's been read. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Another notable passage from the Old Testament is Micah 5. Verses 2 to 4, Micah 5, 2 to 4. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. That's prophesied in Micah uh, chapter 5. Well, the question then is, why did Jesus come as a baby? Why was it so necessary for him to come in this form and in this way at the time in which he did? Well, the answer is pretty simple if we make it simple in this way, that Jesus came as a baby so that he would become fully human. Jesus came as a baby so that he would become fully human. And Jesus' full humanity is essential to accomplishing God's plan uh, for this true Messiah. So today I want to do a theological walkthrough of the humanity of Christ, thinking through this construct of him coming as a baby So that as you consider the events of Jesus' early days, especially this week of Christmas, that you don't miss the larger framework of what Jesus' human nature means to us and how that really he needed to be the baby in order to accomplish in us uh, all that God had intended for his glory. Well, and just thinking of our salvation and the way we sing this, the way we, uh, Pastor John even said uh, that that Christ is for us Christmas, and that Christmas is Christ's work for us. Then our salvation hinges on Jesus taking on flesh, and that starts at the earliest event of his conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So, what I want to do is answer this question: Why a baby? And I want to do it in three ways, and these are the three points of our outline here. That Jesus needed to be human comprehensively in every sense. And Jesus actually became human historically. And finally, that Jesus will remain human eternally. So we can jump right into the first point, that Jesus needed to be human comprehensively. Well, again, the question here is, why did he need to come as a baby? Well, and the answer is because he needed to become human. But the question then is, behind that, couldn't there have been any other way? Couldn't he have come in just swooped down from heaven? Couldn't he have taken on human flesh in some other way than a conception and a birth, and and albeit a a virgin conception and birth? Well, what I want to do is give you just seven quick overview ideas of why Jesus's human nature is necessary in order to accomplish our salvation the way he had intended. So there might be a lot of writing. It's going to be up here for the next seven or ten minutes, so you have some time to write this down if you'd like to. But this point of Jesus needing to become human comprehensively is giving us a bird's-eye view of the scope of reasons why his humanity is so necessary for our salvation. And we see that he needed to become a man, and, well, you can't become a man without starting out as a baby. So here's just the snapshot. The first one is he became a baby in order to reveal the Father, in order to reveal the Father. If you look at John chapter 1, verses 14 and 18 are two passages I want to read with you, and you're welcome to open up as I go through if you're quick at flipping. Otherwise, you can listen and I'll read a lot of these verses to you. So, to reveal the Father, Jesus explained the identity of the Father. And how did he explain him? By taking on the identity of uh, the perfect one in spiritual relationship with the Father. The human boy turned into the human man that lived in order to explain His Father. He lived as a person just like us, and so He made the Father known to us in a way that we couldn't otherwise know Him. Uh, John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh, the Word being Jesus Christ, the Eternal One, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And now we have this window into the intra-Trinitarian life of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, apart from all of humanity in eternal spirit, now coming in the flesh so that we can understand. So we can understand the Father. He explains him by taking on flesh. Verse 18 goes on to say, No one has seen God at any time. Because the Father is eternal spirit, invisible, immaterial, not like us. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, and this is talking about the Son, he has explained him by taking on flesh. John 14, moving ahead in John, uh, verses 7 to 9 are also really helpful. John 14, 7 to 9. If you had known me, Jesus says, you would have known my Father also. From now on... You know him and have seen him. And how can he say that? Because he took on flesh. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Jesus answered him and said, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? See, he embodies all of the deity in human form. To such a degree that now we can say, we know the Father because we see the Son in the flesh. Well, a second reason that Jesus needed to become a baby in order to, in every sense, fulfill God's will for us is uh, the second point for representative obedience. What do I mean by that? That sounds heady. Well, to be obedient where we are not and represent before the Father the kind of obedience that God honors, that pleases God, righteousness that we cannot attain ourselves. And so if you go to Romans 5, this is an excellent passage, verses 12 to 19 thereabouts. Uh, Romans 5, starting at 12, talks about how Jesus is the head of a new and righteous humanity. You see, man coming from the line of Adam has done nothing but sin against God, nothing but dishonor, disrespect, and we understand this. We know this because we woke up today and at some point sin reared its ugly head in our thoughts, in our speech, in our actions, and proved yet again that we do not, in and of ourselves, in the line of Adam, please the Lord. We have guilt that hangs on us. We've been imputed Adam's original sin in the garden, and now it works itself out in practice in our lives in every way. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand on whether or not you sin today, but this happens in practice, and we see the reality of us... um, living in a natural state of guilt, and then the comparison is made with Christ, the second Adam, who never sinned, who lived in absolute righteousness, and in every way, in every day, similarly to what Pastor John was saying, how we, we often teach our children about the early life of Christ to show uh, an absolutely perfect way of acting. What was true of Christ, to verse 17, For if by the transgression of the one, Adam, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So now Jesus in his abundant righteousness accomplishes the obedience that we could never accomplish, and God credits that to us. And so now what has been imputed to us as unrighteousness Christ, as the second and better Adam, can now impute to us righteousness. And so he needed to come as a baby to do this. Uh, Verse 19 goes on to say, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, that's the imputation of unrighteousness, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. And that's the imputation of Christ's righteousness for those who believe. And we thank the Lord for that. But he had to come as a baby in order to do that for us. Otherwise, how could he be called the second Adam? Fair enough? Now, a third point here is that Jesus needed to become a baby to be our example and pattern in life. Now, we're not liberal Christians where the only value of Jesus is morality, where the only reason that we should follow him is because he did right where we could not. And somehow, ethically, our standard, if it doesn't hit that, then, you know, this is already true, that we need his righteousness. We need his obedience to be counted on our behalf before the eyes of God, otherwise we're damned. We confirm this every day that we sin. And yet it is true that his moral life, his ethical excellence, is an example for us. That's why we can... Try and insist with our children. I've got two out of three sitting in the front row here. We try and insist with them to be more like Christ when he was their age. Right There's this reality that Jesus is the example and the pattern for our human living because he came as a baby and developed as a human person into the man that he became in all perfect ethical holiness. And we're to be conformed to God's image as we see God imaged in Christ, First John two six says that the one who says he abides in Him in Christ ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. The standard is set. We understand what we are called to do, and is to walk like him in that pattern of obedience. Uh, 1 Peter two twenty one to twenty five says uh, in verse 21, 1 Peter two, for you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example for you to follow in his steps. We follow in the steps of Christ in an ultimate obedience. If it requires sacrifice, if it requires suffering, we do that already having seen the depths of that example in Christ. Verse 24 of 1 Peter 2 goes on to say, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that that we might die to sin. And live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. See, the imputation of his righteousness allows us to actually image him, to actually live into the righteousness that was bought and paid for by the blood of Christ on the cross. Now, a fourth reason that Jesus had to be a baby is to be the only mediator between God and men, the only mediator between God and men. And that's because spiritual mediation, that intercessory role, that reconciling role, requires someone to be both man and God. Think of the Levitical system. Think of the requirement of having a human mediator for us to have access as humans to God who is not like us. We couldn't be reconciled to God without Jesus having come as a baby and growing up in, uh, in this role of being a perfect mediator between us and the Father. First Timothy two, five and six are really helpful here. First Timothy two, five and six. Say, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. And we could look even at Hebrews 9:15 that specifies that Jesus is our mediator because he's the mediator of uh, the new covenant a new and better way to access the Father, and he then, through his blood, gives us access to the Holy of Holies, to the very presence of God. Well, a fifth point here is that Jesus needed to become a baby in order to be the substitute sacrifice that we need for our sin. And again, this tags along with a lot of what we're talking about, the imputation of righteousness, given that we are under Adam's guilt. Because of his unrighteousness, it's become our unrighteousness. So to be a substitute sacrifice, a man is required to pay the penalty for his sins. And since everyone is guilty in Adam, then we concur with Romans 6.23. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is what? Eternal life. In who? In Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Listen to Hebrews 2, 16 and 17. For assuredly, he doesn't give help to angels. This is talking about Jesus. But he gives help to the descendant of Abraham, the one who actually sinned. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren... In all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The only one that is capable of making a sacrifice that would honor God and please him on our behalf when we do nothing but in our most righteous attempt bring filthy rags before his throne. Then it's Christ because he came as a baby, because he came and dwelt in human flesh. And so now, in his perfect uh, nature, he, and of perfectly human nature, of course, he can now make this uh, atoning work as our high priest. 2 Corinthians 5.21 really ties the bow on this. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it's a great passage to memorize for Christmas. He, the Father, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, Christ was sinless, like us in every way except sin. And by going to the cross, he takes all the guilt of our sin. And what do we take? All of the righteousness of Christ. It's this incredible divine exchange. Second Corinthians 5.21 is only possible because Jesus came as a baby. A sixth point is that he came to destroy the works of the devil. Where's your sting, O death? Christ has overcome the power of Satan. First John three eight says that the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews two fourteen and fifteen also say this. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, you know all of us. He himself, likewise, also partook of the same, becoming flesh like us, that through death on the cross, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Verse 15, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. See, we are slaves to unrighteousness by nature. But Christ has come, As a baby, grew up as a perfect man, went to the cross, although he shouldn't have. And as a result, he's destroyed the works of the devil. A seventh and final point here. Why did Jesus need to be human in every sense? And why did that mean that he had to be conceived as a human baby? To give eternal life to the sheep. To give eternal life to his sheep. By sacrificing his human flesh, he eternally saved all those that he intends to save. Doesn't let a one of them go out of his hand. John 10, verses 10 and 11 are really helpful here. John 10, 10 and 11. You know, this has the great, uh, she- the good shepherd passage. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So, these are seven reasons that Jesus needed to take on full human flesh in order to fulfill God's will for our salvation, in order to, that we might, in our flesh, glorify God. But lingering behind the questions is still that strange, intangible question that we do ask around this time. Even still, why did he have to come as a baby? Why a baby? Couldn't he have just dropped out of the sky like we said? Couldn't he have ridden in on a sunbeam? Couldn't he have just done kind of a Superman tactic? Just come in, save the world, and leave. Take on human flesh just enough to cover all the bases here. God had the most intangible intangible expression of of Christ's role in fulfilling his will that we could ever think. In fact, we would have never dreamed this, to be conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of a young virgin. Well, this gets us then to our next point. Because we know theologically that that Jesus did need to come into human flesh. And we're making that connection with the fact that you don't become a human unless you first become a baby. You don't become a baby unless you are conceived. And this brings us to the fact that historically, Jesus did come and he was conceived. And that is how he came, he became human historically. So this is the discussion that really grabs onto all the Christmas imagery that's in our heads. We think of the virgin birth of Christ. We're thinking of the um, the, the, the manger. We're thinking of the whole scene. We're thinking of all the birth narratives and everything around the early years of Jesus. But we can... Talk a little bit more in depth, I think, about how the Son of God, who is Eternal Spirit within the life of the Trinity, never diminishing that, never losing that, takes on human flesh. Now, this is what we call theologically the incarnation, taking on flesh, the the, the carne, right, the the meat. He takes on flesh. This is the incarnation. Now, that's just the theological term, but we can actually add on a little bit more. Uh, meat of our own to this idea. And I could do this in two ways. So what I want to do is split up the discussion of the incarnation, of the taking on flesh, in a couple ways. And the first is the most readily accessible, and it's the virgin conception and birth. Now, we're distinguishing it as conception uh, before birth. Now, when we talk about the virgin conception and birth, there's a biblical portrayal, and then there's a biological process. Uh, but let's talk about how this works biblically. We know this from Matthew 1 and from Luke 1, that the conception of the Son of God is in Mary's womb, and it's caused by the Holy Spirit. We read that this morning, and these are the passages that we know. In 118, um, it says, Before uh, Mary and her betrothed Joseph came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. In 120 of Matthew, the child uh, is, is said to have been conceived in her by the Holy Spirit. Jumping to the Luke narrative in 131, it says, "And behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus." The name's already given. And further along, in Luke 1:35, as we've also heard today, the angel answered and said to her, "The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you." And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So what interests us is to understand this overshadowing. What does it mean for the Holy Spirit to come upon Mary when this breaks ties with all normal biological process? This is not the way that a child is conceived through normal means. There's no human father involved in the conception. This is a supernatural act, and it is one that can be used then to designate this child who is holy in and of himself as the son of God. He's not the son of Joseph through natural means, only by adoption. He's the son of Mary, and most properly, he's the son of God. Son of God the Father. So, this is the biblical portrayal. What can we know about the biological process? Okay, here's where I want to do a bit of sanctified scientific speculation using ninth grade biology. Okay, this is really nothing so tricky, but it is something that maybe you've never thought about. Uh, And I think maybe that's just me in wearing the theologian's cap. I think it's interesting, and I also have a science background. So I can merge these things. This is probably the only time in a theology lesson that I'm able to merge somewhat these types of ideas. But here's what seems to be indicated by this overshadowing of Mary. And it's this concept, and I, I would give it to you as a statement first. The Holy Spirit must have overshadowed Mary in such a way that he used all of her DNA and no one else's to produce Jesus. The Holy Spirit must have used all of Mary's DNA and no one else's to produce her son. Now, we are going to consider that biology that's involved, just for a moment. Well, the first thing to say is that Jesus is not Mary's clone. Jesus is not a clone of his mother, That wouldn't make her a mother at all, and it wouldn't make him a son. So conception in the womb has to draw from Mary's reproductive capacity, to say it that way, drawing from all of her DNA, all of her genes, but there must be some rearranging. Why would I say this? And you're wondering, why do I even care? I do care, because we're still establishing the fact that Jesus needs to be fully human, In order to do everything that God has for him to accomplish. And for him to be fully human means he needs to be fully human in his conception. Well, so the biological way to safeguard this virgin conception and show and safeguard his humanity is to say that the Holy Spirit wouldn't have just copied Mary's genes to a T, or he would have been a clone. But Jesus isn't a clone, he must have taken her DNA done what laboratories still can't do ex-utero, you know, in vitro, and done what was purely a miracle within her own womb, taking the DNA, taking the genes, splicing to create a completely new person. Now, to create a new person usually involves the genes of the mother and the father. No father, only mother. Now, something interesting is that a woman does not have the genetic capacity to create a male child. Were you aware of this? This is the ninth grade biology part. <laughs> a woman, when we talk about those sex differentiating chromosomes, the sex chromosomes, they are XX. What is a male? Anybody remember this? XY. The Y cannot be found in a female. That must come from the father. Their father. So, again, this reinforces the point that the Holy Spirit, in overshadowing Mary, coming upon her, must have rearranged her DNA to create what is impossible, and certainly impossible even in a laboratory, even 2,000 years later. And in her very womb, turned the XX into an XY on that particular chromosome, in those genes, in that segment of the DNA, and did so much else to complete completely create another person, a male person. You see, there's something about this conception that I think we can, we can say is that much more special if we just consider it from ninth grade biology. What we see is a unique person who is Mary's genetic heir, is in her line, in her genealogy, and fully human, <clears throat> See, what I also want to break is this idea, and this is the theological problem of it all. Let's say, and, and here we talk within the biological process of the theological reasoning, that I would even make these conclusions, because I know this is kind of new. If you had this old medieval Renaissance age concept of Jesus kind of floats in as a sun, on a sunbeam, comes in as a divine seed have you seen these? Little, little embryo Jesus, perhaps even on a cross. And they show him just being divinely implanted into the womb. What do you have? Now, you might not think about it, but you have a demigod. You have a Hercules. You have somebody with DNA that doesn't come from a human in the line of Adam. And we need Jesus to come in the line of Adam. Otherwise, how can he impute righteousness for others that are in the line of Adam? This is just being dropped in from the sky. So this idea that that Jesus could be created, sure, we could do what we say is an ex nihilo creation, from scratch. Well, pardon me, but God finished his creative acts when he rested on the seventh day. He's not going to create a, a, a superhuman and implant. He's not going to create new human DNA outside of the line of Adam and implant doesn't work. You can't hold the genealogy that we have of Jesus, which goes all the way back to Adam. So I think the point is sufficiently made that there is something incredible about the biological process that if we stop and think just from simple high school biology, you can say, this is truly a miracle. And what does that miracle do? It makes Jesus fully human and we need him to be fully human. Now, why this really matters then theologically gets into point B here, the kenosis. Have you heard that term before? Kenosis? Yeah, it's, again, you feel like I'm going way into the theology stuff, but we're just grabbing from a a Greek word uh, to, to say emptying. And there's a passage here that helps us understand, and you know the passage very well. It's Philippians 2. So turn with me to Philippians 2, and we're going to read verses 6 to 8 together. And we're going to talk about how the kenosis is God's design in order to create Jesus as a full human. And it is a perfect complement to what we've just seen in this incarnation of him taking on flesh uh, through conception. So the kenosis, we, we read about it by using the Greek term for emptying in Philippians 2, 6 to 8. The passage says this. We read about Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Notice in verse 7, it says that uh, Christ was made in the likeness of men, which means that the virgin conception was a fully human conception. And we don't doubt that from the, the Luke narrative, from the Matthew narrative, but it's reaffirmed in Philippians 2.7. Well, if, according to the next verse, in verse 8, it says he's found in appearance as a man. Which is to say that everything about him was human. There's no disagreeing with his external appearance being as a man. However, it also is saying that his external appearance, his physical form, relates to his internal essence, who he actually is at the DNA level. He is fully human. And there's this use of the term form that in the Greek always means that. That there's that if something is uh, in its internal essence, whatever it is, it'll always express it outward. A seed always turns into the type of plant that is embedded in the seed. All right. And so in this sense, Jesus expressed outwardly the human nature that he had from the conception. So... What I mentioned is that the theological framing of Philippians 2, 6 through 8 is called the kenosis, and that it fits in with the idea of Jesus taking on flesh. Well, the term kenosis is what you see in verse 7. It's that term emptying I mentioned, and it's, it says this, that the Son of God became flesh, and and what would that mean? This emptying is a voluntary act. In his divine will, he decided to come off of holy heaven and and shroud himself in such a way that he would take on human flesh and outwardly manifest what is now true of him as well, that he is fully human. Now the emptying, some have gone so far to say, and this is liberal theology, this is false Christianity, that he emptied himself, stopped being God entirely. He only became fully man. But that's not what the verse says. This emptying of himself, let's use a theological expression here, and you might want to write this down, emptying by addition. Emptying by addition, not losing anything, adding something else. In conception, what did Jesus add to his already divine nature, a human nature that now expresses itself in the form of a slave? Here's a word picture that can help you to that you see the internal essence, which is the corn kernels. So in a sense, we could say uh, Jesus, his divine essence, his perfections, his omniscience, his independence from his creation, everything about him which says, I am God, is now like these kernels of an ear of corn, now shrouded, now sheathed in a husk that doesn't readily show you until he peels it back every once in a while. The transfiguration, what does he do? He shines brightly in his glory. Now, that's still perceived in a human way. He's immaterial as eternal spirit. But Christ has taken on flesh, and every once in a while you see him in his power. The power to forgive sin is his because he's divine. But what we see is that he has emptied himself by addition. So what is the emptying then? It's giving up the external manifestation of his divine perfections, of his omnipotence, of his glory, of his independence from his creation. He takes on flesh and he chooses to do so. So now what does he manifest? Instead of shining in the bright light of his eternal glory while he's on earth, He takes on a form that Isaiah 53, 2 says is not stately. There's no majesty in it as far as people can behold. See, he's emptied himself of his divine right to be glorified in all of his shining existence. And instead, people just, they don't see him of any reputation. But he is supremely beautiful. They can't see it because he's masked himself in humanity. Instead of acting within the full range of his infinite knowledge, of his sovereign control over all things, he needs to be potty trained. Right? When he's a teenager, he has to learn carpentry from Joseph to take over the craft. You see, and instead of living independent of his crea- creation, where he has no need of us, isn't that what Paul tells the pagan uh, worshipers in Athens? In, in Acts 17.30, he says he has no need of anything that you should build him a temple. Instead, Jesus, when he takes on flesh as a baby, he needs to be protected by his parents. He needs to be swaddled. He needs to be fed. It's emptying by addition. Do you see that? He denied the full expression of his divine nature. And that's why Philippians 2.8 says that he humbled himself. It's quite humiliating. It is what we call the humiliation of Christ. Where's his boasting when he comes as a baby? What happened to his reputation as king of the universe when he's learning to walk, when he's learning to talk, when he's learning to pick up a hammer and a saw carefully? Well, we're grateful that there are those moments that the sheath is pulled back and we see him in his radiant glory but he wants us to see him in the form of a slave because he took it and it was his genetically through the virgin conception and his birth and his development and everything about him shows that he emptied himself by adding on his humanity. I hope you see Jesus' full humanity and the fact of everything you read about him in the Gospels that points to that. He is fully human, like us, yet without sin. Every day of his his earthly existence, just think from a bird's eye view for a moment of some of the ways. And, And Pastor John actually went into that this morning. He gave quite a long list of the humanity of Christ that results from the virgin conception and the birth. Right, Luke 2 teaches us that he had a fully human development as a child, as a growing boy. So scripture gives us those early years in some fashion. And then we know that he had fully human limitations. Like what? He grew tired and weary, so he slept. And we have verses on that. We need Jesus to be human in this way. That's... Him coming as a baby and being this, so that he can fulfill theologically everything that he's called to do to the glory of God. He grew hungry, he grew thirsty, so he ate and he drank. He had to submit to his parents, he had to pay his taxes, he had to live a godly life. So we see him modeling public worship, we see him modeling as a young man memorizing scripture and working with the text. We see him in prayer. This is the one who is beset by human limitations because he emptied himself by adding on humanity. And this is how we see him actively being obedient to that perfect level that pleases God so that God would say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And we need him to be that. What we don't like to see is that side of his humanity, his sorrow, his displeasure, his anger, His agony, his loneliness, the feeling of separation from the Father while he's on the cross. But that's part of his humanity, too. You see, he's fully human in every way. We don't like that he went through temptations in the wilderness. And those 40 days are just a brief glimpse of the types of temptations that he faced throughout all of his life. But that intense period makes him a a way better Adam than Adam in the garden. We have Jesus in the wilderness under those types of temptations from Satan, and then we get Satan, the ancient serpent, tempting Adam, and in one fell swoop he falls. So we see Jesus in his humanity growing weary under this, and yet we see him also receiving the grace of God. We see him sustained by the Holy Spirit, empowered to live another day to the glory of Christ. That's... Are Jesus, because he came as a baby. Well, our final point here, uh, let's see. Yeah, it, we want to move that discussion along theologically, and we'll just take a few minutes to set up another theological term, and it's the hypostatic union. Have you heard of that? Hypostatic union. Well, I just want to frame how Jesus' virgin conception and birth would lead to a state of humanity that now, for Jesus, will never end. He will always remain human, and this is to our benefit. So let's think about how Jesus remains human eternally by using this term, the hypostatic union. It's a theological term, of course, and we're, again, dragging from the Greek. A hypostasis is to talk about personhood, the person. Of the Son of God. And so to talk about his hypostatic union is to say it's the union of his divine person and his human person, the one with which he uh, put the husk around his deity. And so now it's this merging of his divinity and his humanity that can never be undone. He can never be anything less than God and man. You see, the importance of the virgin conception and birth and his life and his full humanity is that God had always willed for him to take on that human flesh and to keep it forever. But the days of his emptying, of the the, the forceful, voluntary uh, uh, denial of the full expression of his deity is now gone when he resurrects. When he raises From the dead, he's in humanity 2.0, and it doesn't have the same limitations. He's got a new and a glorified body. Well, the doctrine of this hypostatic union really affirms that what has been joined together will never be undone. And so we think of Christ in heaven even now. Do you think of him in a human body? Yes. You need to. Do you lay awake like me at night wondering how he's got human lungs. Is he breathing up there? This is the highest heavens. I don't think there's air. I don't know how that works. But I know that he's inseparably God and man. And that matters for us. Scripture affirms that he will never go back to just eternal spirit, and he will never just be human. Because he never was just human. He was always God and man. And now we see that that carries over into his resurrected body. And with that flesh, it points us forward too. So as you think of his resurrected body, you see this hypostatic union uh, in, in action. Well, there are eyewitnesses. More than 500 people saw his body. We know that this is real, and we know that he goes then ascending into heaven. And what do the angels then say in Acts 1.11? When, when they're looking, and they say, well, why do you look there? He's going to come the same way that he went. And when he comes back, he will come back in his new human body without the limitations So we understand that he is empowered with a new strength in this body, and he will have it forever. Now, just so that we understand, he goes to heaven, he doesn't temporarily throw off this body or something. We don't know how he exists, the way he exists, but Stephen saw him in his human body up in heaven in that vision as he's being stoned. The Apostle Paul met him in his human body, his resurrected body. The Apostles there before the Ascension did, but we're talking after the Ascension even, the Apostle John in Revelation 1 interacts with him in his resurrected body. And this is all before he comes back, but he will come back in that body. And when he does, he's going to be just as human as he was before. What does he say in Matthew 26, 29? He says at the final Passover meal, Jesus says, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine. He's in his meal with his, uh, his men there. Matthew twenty six twenty nine, uh, Until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's right. He will have the capacity to eat and to drink because he always remains human. That's the hypostatic union. A union of divine and human persons. It can never be less. Why do I show you this? Why do you need to know this theology as you come into Christmas week? It's because of how significant it is for you to live in Christ today. See, we we set our hopes on his resurrection body being the pattern for our future bodies. We learn this from scripture, Philippians 3, 1 Corinthians 15, that he will transform our lowly body and we will become like him. Right now we're earthy because we're in Adam's line, but in our perfected nature, we will be heavenly. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 49. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. You see, Jesus' new humanity, his humanity 2.0, becomes our new humanity. And this sets our eyes toward him. We don't know exactly what that's going to be like. That's what the Apostle John says in 1 John 3.2. It says, it hasn't been manifested yet what we will be like, but we know that we will be following him as the first fruits of resurrection in his resurrected body. But beyond that, we see that if he doesn't retain his humanity, what can he not do? He can't restore order in his future kingdom and even into the new heavens and the new earth, how is he going to do any better than Adam who failed to keep the dominion under the mandate that he was given? Genesis 1, to 28 says that, that man was called to hold dominion over all of creation, but he falls, creation falls, and so do his responsibilities. And we eke out bad dominion, don't we? Christ, though, as the second Adam, always inseparably man and God, will restore that dominion and bring us in as kings and queens to rule with him for all eternity on a new earth. Can you imagine that? Can you picture? That's what you're singing when you sing joy to the world, by the way. You're celebrating what he will do as the second Adam. But he can't have that unless he's... Conceived by a virgin in her genetic line. Now, the final point of application, then I'll let you go. You need Jesus to have been humanly conceived and born and lived a human life and retain his humanity. And you need to know that now that he has ascended into heaven and once he comes back, he will always be human. And you need to know that because you need a sympathy for today. You need him to be who he is so he can help you who you are in the way that you are now. Hebrews 2.18 says, for since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. You see, his sympathy wasn't something that the Trinity could just imagine with their omniscience. It's something that he experienced because of human temptations as a real human. Hebrews 4 15 and 16, you know very well. Great passage to end on. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He experienced temptation. He knows that you do as well. So let me conclude this way. As you come into this Christmas week, as you contemplate Jesus as a baby, look and listen to all the narratives, all the stories of Christ, and all that you see depicted of him with those theological eyes that you need to have. The theological framework is this, that the Son of God needed to become human in order to fulfill God's will on our behalf and to bring ultimate glory to God on the earth. And so the son became a baby through miraculous means. That we can agree on. And Jesus' experience of full humanity, this state of humiliation which began at conception, resulted in the redemption of humanity with the promise of perfection for us in the end, in a new humanity. And so the hope that you have, however, for the future, is something that you need to cultivate now, that you have one who is tempted in every way as a human like you, never sinned, but can sympathize with you who do. He intercedes now at his Father's throne as a human, making that mediatorial help to you that you need. And so my prayer for you is that Jesus this week won't just be a porcelain figure, won't be just a portrait with a gilded halo. That you won't see him that way, but you will see Christ as your all in all. God with flesh. Let's pray. Father, we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, this very week, that you will exalt your Son in our eyes that Jesus, our Lord, will be always seen as the God-man that he is. That our hearts and our minds would be conformed to the very theology of these verses that we sing so readily. And on this special week, would you exalt your Son, that we might see him in three dimensions, in a relatable, perceptible way, and yet without losing the mystery and the awe. May we have him as our chief desire, the person that we most cherish in every season, not just now. And would you please bless us as we consider all that we've learned. In your name we pray. Amen.